Um, my name is Ann Mosley. I'm a vice president of programs for the uh, W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and I'm just delighted to be here with all of you this morning and our great uh, panelists for what I hope will be a, a, a conversation around new strategies for cultivating change and how can philanthropy step up. And before we get started, I am curious, how many folks in the room uh, actually consider themselves a philanthropist? If you could raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have made a um, financial gift to an organization in the past six months? How many of you have volunteered in the past six months? Okay, so it looks like everybody here, we have 100% givers and philanthropists. Excellent. So um, part of this is we have two extraordinary leaders of the field, um, Jane Wales, who is a vice president for philanthropy and society at the Aspen Institute, as well as president and CEO of the Global Philanthropy Forum, and um, an extensive, extensive background in philanthropy. And Cheryl Dorsey, who is the president and CEO of Echo and Green, one of the leading organizations on social entrepreneurship. Cheryl's the first um, fellow of Echo and Green to actually run um, the organization. She comes to the field of social entrepreneurship as a trained pediatrician um, from Harvard, where she also ran um, a community van, um, a family van for community healthcare systems. So she really comes from a social entrepreneurship background herself and running an organization. So um, in this, there were two things I just wanted to uh, share with you all to get us started. And um, even we've talked a lot through the past week about the you know, extremely difficult economic climate and changes and, and challenges that we face as a country. And at the same time, we are seeing the field of philanthropy and social change continue to come alive. And just to kind of ground us a little bit, when we think from between 2000, um, there were about uh, 56,000 56, foundations in the year 2000. And now in 2008, there's 75,000. Um, this growth is just happening explosively across the country as, um, as well as across the world. Um, and I just think it's important where we think a lot about there's recession and, um, and challenges to economic choices that we do not fall into a scarcity model. And one piece that I'd be happy to talk about later, if it's of interest to the, um, to the audience, because you all have incredible stories that we really want to hear from you as well, your comments, your questions. But at the Kellogg Foundation, as someone who's worked in the sector for about 20 years, I was privileged to be part of a launch of a new mission-driven investment fund which we took about $100 million from our endowment dollars to put it towards programming um, and looking at double bottom line investing. And so looking at how could you make investments that had a financial return, and for us that was a 4 to 6% financial return, but also could have a social return, so either increased educational outcomes for kids, access to capital and credit and resources in communities, or improving health. And I think the trend in philanthropy where um, in our regulatory system, foundations only give away 5% of our assets. It's a chance to think about how do we tap that other 95% of assets and put that towards our mission work. So um, that's just something later. I think it's one of the strategies that philanthropy is trying to step up um, that I'd, happy be able, I'd be happy to talk about more later in the session. With that being said, it is my pleasure to turn it over to Jane Wales, who's going to ground us a little bit in the context of what's going in the field, some key trends, some insights from her work. Okay, thanks so much. Um, the, what I'll do is just say a word about, about the broad trends we're seeing in philanthropy and then uh, end with maybe a comment or two or, or maybe turn to questions for a comment or two about uh, what we at Aspen are doing both in anticipation and in response to those trends. Um, as as uh, Anne mentioned, I founded something called the Global Philanthropy Forum, which is a network of a little over 750 individuals who've chosen to form family foundations and made a commitment to to international causes. It started in the US, but expanded so that we have philanthropists from India, from South Africa, from, uh, from China, from all around the world. Um, and they reflect uh, six broad trends, which I think you're, you're seeing in philanthropy more broadly. Uh, and the, the first of those trends is that foundations led by uh, living benefactors have begun to reach, or already for a while now, have, uh, have the same kind of or even surpassed the scope and the scale and the impact of many of the foundations that were founded as a result of an estate uh, that are more traditional foundations. And these living benefactors are folks that are often at the height of their career, quite young, 
they are strategic, they are highly engaged, uh, and for the most part very much shaped by their experience in the private sector. So they bring uh, a set of core competencies to bear when it comes to philanthropy. Most importantly, they, like all philanthropists, uh, are all about achieving results. Results really matter. Um, the second broad trend where we are seeing um, is that these philanthropists are really bold. <laughs> they are not at all shy about taking on problems as large as poverty, as global climate change, as reforming our education system. Uh, they see these problems as systems that need to be replaced by new systems uh, that are better. So they take a, a highly systemic approach and they are not shy about large problems. Um, the third trend I, I think relates to this second. Because they are taking on things so large, they know that, I mean, even Bill Gates will say he simply doesn't have the resources to achieve his very bold and, and uh, far-reaching goals. And so they seek leverage. Um, they leverage each other uh, through, uh, through organizations like the Global Philanthropy Forum, like the organizations we're forming within the Aspen Institute, like Clinton Global Initiative and others. They leverage the private sector, uh, and by that I mean we, you know, many of them take their own companies and try to put them to the service of social objectives. Uh, they'll, uh, they're sort of, I would call this beyond corporate social responsibility into a world in which you try to make social change be inherent, uh, intrinsic to the value chain of the company itself. But they leverage the private sector in a variety of ways and just referred to the notion of investing uh, in small and growing enterprises that provide uh, a social return, uh, in many instances, sort of goods and services, and income-producing opportunities for the poor. And many of you perhaps have read, uh, met Randall Kempner, uh, who runs the Aspen Network for de of Development Entrepreneurs, and that's very much dedicated to that. Uh, and then finally, they leverage the public sector. Uh, and uh, and we're gonna, I think, as a group, probably touch on that a little more, but just to say, uh, the formation of public-private partnerships was something that was championed by traditional foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation and others, but that's a path that new philanthropists just go down with absolute ease. Uh, they, they almost don't, don't recognize either geographic boundaries or boundaries between sectors. They just sort of flow down there easily. Um, having said that, um, the next trend I'd, I'd like to point to is, well, I'll just say that uh, the next trend is that in the process they have uh, contributed to the convergence of, of these three sectors. But having said that, um, and, and having mentioned perhaps the faith in which new philanthropy, uh, the new philanthropists put uh, in, uh, in the private sector, for example, um, they do not believe that markets solve all problems. Uh, that markets may produce rational, uh, rational outcomes, the rational distribution of wealth, but they don't necessarily, markets don't necessarily produce the equitable distribution of wealth. And that's the role for philanthropy, it's a role for policy, uh, and it's something they are uh, eager to do. Uh, the last large trend, though, that I would point to um, is that there's a sense that there is an enormous opportunity, well, let me just step back and say, a sense that most of the problems we face uh, as well as their solutions, will be the aggregate, aggregate effect of millions of individual choices. So, you know, whether to cut down a tree, whether to engage in safe sex, whether to be wasteful with water, whether, you know, just go, go down the list, um, frequent, whether to take out farms uh, or insist on voting. Um, these are individual choices, and so the opportunity, the huge opportunity that exists out there is to inform those choices. Um, and so I would argue that we're starting to see philanthropists very much use search technology, you know, basically uh, the information and communications revolution to try to inform and influence individual choices as opposed to group choices. And I think many people would argue, and I'm happy to be challenged about this as we all wake up, but there are many folks who, who would argue that the biggest contribution to economic development overseas will not have been a foundation's work. It will be Google. It will be a decision to translate the world's knowledge into the languages of the developing world. So if you can access the world's knowledge in Arabic, in Swahili, in Farsi, et cetera, that the opportunity for each individual to do that and have well-informed choices 
uh, has grown enormously. I think I've talked too long to go on to the Aspen thing, but let me just say that Aspen has, has taken a look at, at not only new philanthropy, but also other sectors that have chosen to be social actors. Uh, and, and we argue that, of course, the non-governmental, you know, nonprofit organizations are, have always been at the forefront, uh, but private sector corporations are now, now at the forefront, as are uh, small enterprises. Uh, and of course, the public sector is supposed to be advancing the public good, that's what it exists for. Um, and so what we've done is taken a look at these new actors or this combination of actors and say, how can we help them be most efficient and effective in achieving their social, social goals? How can we ensure that they leverage one another effectively without losing their own identity and unique value in the process? And that has been the focus of our program. And I will tell you more about what that means practically, but that's its purpose. That's great. Um, and so thank you so much, Jane, for giving us, as we're waking up, a, a really sort of shared picture of what the field and the world is looking like through the eyes of philanthropy. And Cheryl, if you can really kind of, social entrepreneurship is a term we hear a lot about. And we, and can you just sort of give us a sense of the field and the work that you've been doing and why you see this as such an incredibly important moment for the social entrepreneurship field in solving social issues? Sure. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming. It's really an impressive endeavor to get here. <laughs> the last morning of the conference before 8 a.m. Um, so uh, as Ann mentioned, I run an organization called Echoing Green, which is one of the um, organizations uh, in the social entrepreneurship space. Um, so I do think you know one utility that I can provide here is to sort of explain the term. And it's a new enough field. It's only sort of been around as a field of endeavor about 25 or 30 years. So in any new field, you know, you ask six people, you're going to get four different definitions of social entrepreneurship. But, but that's OK. Um, in a field that's roiling and growing and developing, um, I think if we sort of get a sense of what it looks like from every side, um, that's probably good enough for this morning. So, you know, let me start off with a, one of my favorite quotes from President Kennedy, who in 1962 was giving a speech at, on nuclear disarmament at American University. And he said, you know, our problems are man-made, therefore they may be solved by man. You know, no problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. And I love that quote because in many ways it is the clarion cause, the rallying cry for those of us who do the work of social entrepreneurship. And it's this notion that, you know, individuals, individuals as change makers in society um, can make a difference. Um, so you can variously define a social entrepreneur. So, you know, who is this unique social sector actor? You can say a social entrepreneur is society's change agent. Or you could say they are pioneers of innovation that benefit humanity. Or as I will often say, these are folks who are pragmatic visionaries who develop innovative solutions to some of society's most intractable problems. Um, so that's all well and good, but it's always better if I give you examples. So as Ann said, you know, my organization, Echoing Green, we are angel investors in the social sector. So we give seed capital or startup funding, as well as technical support to some of the world's best young emerging social entrepreneurs. Um, so we were started um, in 1987 by the senior leadership of a private equity firm called General Atlantic. And those guys were really um, pioneers of this notion of how do you sort of adapt business principles and practices and apply them to the social sector. And I think one of the most, the smartest, most idealistic, most optimistic um, uh, underpinnings of social entrepreneurship in Echoing Green is that, you know, by betting on young people, you know, harnessing their passion, their commitment, their dedication, their bandwidth to engage in some of these very tough problems um, will actually be a highly leveraged play over time. So Echoing Green over the years has invested in um, Teach for America. If any of you have heard of the sort of the teacher core started by Wendy Kopp soon after she graduated from Princeton University. Uh, we were also funders of Eric Adler, Raj Vinokota. If you were here earlier in the week and saw Waiting for Superman, um, Eric and Raj, after they left business consulting, founded the Seed School, which is our nation's first urban boarding public school um, that is having phenomenal results in um, smashing the achievement gap between poor and better off children in our nation's capital. Um, we were also seed funders of a young man, Vikram Makula, a community organizer out of India, also a consultant out of the Chicago office of McKinsey, who went on to found SKS Microfinance, which is now the fastest growing microcredit institution in the entire world, um, serving more than 5 million poor women in 20,000 slums and villages across India. It's also an interesting example of what Anne and Jane alluded to, to this increasing blurring of boundaries between our sectors 
Vic Rome's organization, SKS, is actually a for-profit entity. So they're using the microcredit industry and leveraging capital markets to drive change. And SKS is actually now in the process of going public. They're going through an IPO, and if it is successfully completed, it will be only the second time in history that a social enterprise has gone public. So there's some really interesting changes afoot. So when you look at the field of social entrepreneurship, you know, why do we, those of us who practice in this industry, find it so interesting? So I find it interesting for a couple of reasons. So you know, our sector is fond of saying that you know, philanthropic dollars really serve as the venture capital um, for you know, society. I actually don't think that's often true. Um, because if you think about the power of venture capital to really incent innovation, to create hospitable ecosystems for innovation, which is really about driving solutions to customers, the philanthropic sector traditionally has not done a great job of that. And I'll give you a great example. Echoing Green, as I said, we're angel investors, so we're all about incenting innovation at the earliest stages. Um, and how do we do that? I think we do it in a couple of good ways. The notion of investing in people, not projects, at the end of the day, you're investing in human capital and ideas that have the potential to transform society. So people, not projects. The second thing is, you know, how do you provide for long-term and flexible funding that is absolutely critical to incenting innovation. Um, and I think that's also tied to this notion of the philanthropic sector not being open enough to this notion of failure. I mean, Echoing Green, you know, we are a really good angel investor, but not all of our investments pan out. But what I've always loved about the organization is that it allows sort of, you know, the opportunity to bet big and often win big, but also learn a lot through what doesn't work. So giving the opportunity for failure to inform our decisions. Um, and then I think the last part that um, really needs to be done better in our sector around process innovation is this notion of rewarding effort, not results. I mean, you know, there's some really good work done in the scientific field that looks at you know, how governments fund scientific researchers versus how private entities like the Howard Hughes Medical Institute fund scientists. And often what you find is when dollars are directed to you know, trying to get short-term results, that actually tamps down on innovation in a pretty profound way, as opposed to giving researchers, innovators, social entrepreneurs the opportunity to test, drive certain efforts, pull back, go in a different direction. So again, I think this whole notion of an ecosystem of innovation is absolutely critical to getting to the level of social sector problem solving that is really required today. So again, I've talked too much, but I'll, I'll stop no, there. No, 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 um, great comments. And I think um, I'd love to take advantage of both of your expertises. Um, both of our panelists have served not only out in the field and in communities and philanthropy, but also inside the White House and other sort of governmental um, spots um, and agencies. And one of the things that we have seen at the Kellogg Foundation is looking at there's so much activity out there. How do we help um, create networks and efforts that are aligned around common goals, sort of the era of my new, new thing? Foundations were notorious saying, this is my initiative on early childhood development. Oh, but this is my initiative. And maybe, you know, how can we also say our initiative about how we are all in the field of philanthropy really working and collaborating just like we ask our grantees? Probably no one's ever experienced that. Um, but it's interesting to see um, you know, the piece that Jane and Cheryl talked about, this blurring of sector lines. In the state of New Mexico, for example, the lieutenant governor has a very active children's cabinet that brings all of the cabinet secretaries across economic development to children, youth, and families to education to come together around children in a specific and deliberate partnership with philanthropy. In Michigan, for example, we have a council, we have an office of foundation liaisons that works directly with the governor. So when we look at big issues, in Michigan we have quite a few, how can we really get the philanthropy lever to be more powerful? Um, both Cheryl have been very involved in um, where we are at this moment in time with the new administration. You've all heard about the new office um, of social innovation and the Social Innovation Fund, the very exciting corporation for national service. And I just thought maybe you'd give some insights to folks about where you see opportunities to leverage or insights about what's happening in the public-private um, sector space. Jane and Cheryl. Why don't I start with the past and you take us to the future. Um, I, I'm struck by the fact that here, Murray Gell-Mann is sitting in the front row. Um, I worked with Murray when I was in government. I was at the Office of Science and Technology Policy and on the National Security Council staff. And he was a member of the President's uh, Committee of Advisors on Science and Technology. And he'd be the first person to tell you to pick up on, on, uh, on Cheryl's point that if you're only focused on outcomes, you'll never actually get the kind of discovery you can. 
So if you're, if you're, if you're only sort of saying, well, gee, I, I want to cure cancer tomorrow, <laughs> then you're not, and, and I'm only going to fund the person who's going to do it you know, in the next six months. The likelihood that you're going to get the kind of accidental discovery which science is all about has been diminished. So reducing risk, <laughs> reducing randomness is, is a huge mistake when it comes to social change. Let me just give you an example just from my own life of public-private partnerships or about the way that the social sector can leverage the public sector and the public sector can leverage the social sector and then say that that activity may be on steroids now um, with, the, uh, with the Obama administration because so many leaders of the, in the administration come out of the philanthropic sector or the social sector more broadly. Um, when I was at Carnegie Corporation, I chaired the international program there. Uh, and this was at the, toward the end of the Cold War. We were particularly concerned uh, that, uh, that the Soviet Union wouldn't simply come apart. It would come apart in a chaotic, unmanaged way. Uh, and under those circumstances, we wondered what would happen with the nuclear weapons material. Uh, and so the end of the Cold War was only interesting to us if it was managed and in such a way that it didn't increase danger, it reduced danger. Uh, a group of us who happened to be regulars at the Aspen, uh, at, in, in the Aspen Strategy Group here at Aspen, uh, were folks in the policy world, but also in the philanthropic world, who would say all the right things during the meetings, but then when we went on hikes together, deals were made. Uh, mm -hmm. I, or we, we informed one another. In the process of those hikes, uh, we came up with something that later became the non-Lugar uh, Cooperative Threat Reduction uh, uh, Program. That is to say, an effort to use US public dollars, taxpayer dollars, uh, not to simply defend against a threat, but to go overseas and remove that threat, and in fact, go within the Soviet Union at that time, or the, what soon became the former Soviet Union, identify where the nuclear weapons material was, uh, bring it all into one country, Russia, uh, measure that, uh, the nuclear weapon materials, account for that nuclear weapons material, secure those nuclear weapons material, and then poor Murray comes into government, and I went into government, and uh, it was our job to actually do it. Um, but here was an example of social actors uh, operating outside of government, interacting with those who operated within government in order to get us to solve a specific problem facing society. We are. Green Revolution is a similar one. There's a whole lot of you know, much larger examples. But Cheryl has uh, played a very active role during the transition and beyond in advising this government in this, in this regard. And, and it'd be great to so share, to, to hear from yeah. you, because you're, you're more modern than I. Well, you know, my, my disclaimer is that uh, back in 1997, 1998, I spent a year as a White House fellow working in um, an executive branch of the government. And literally after that year, went running and screaming, saying, you know, thank God for people like Murray and Jane who sort of get in there and sort of take on this bureaucracy that I found completely, um, you know, impenetrable and tough. And I said, I came, I saw, and I left. And I said, I'm going back <laughs> to the social sector where I belong, and I've been happily there ever since. But I was asked to volunteer as private citizen um, on the presidential transition on social innovation and did it because I felt um, as someone who is a practitioner of social entrepreneurship, it was my responsibility as a citizen to be involved. And I will say, you know, sort of one of the raison d'etres of the field of social entrepreneurship was this very profound belief that, you know what, the government is not going to solve our problems alone, that it is going to be individual change agents, going to be community members from the bottom up figuring out how to do our work. And it was actually very, um, in the early days of social entrepreneurship, there was a very strident belief that stay as far away from the government as possible. It's a disaster, it's dysfunctional, you're better to go around it than to work with it. And I actually have seen a wonderful maturation of our field, myself included, that in fact, when you recognize the scale and the complexity of our problems today, that unless we work together in concert, all sectors, private sector, government, um, the civil society, unless we come together in very coordinated ways, we're never going to get the kind of leverage we need to solve our problems. So I think we all have matured in our field to recognize that this is the only way we're going to get to scale and to solving problems. And I'll give you a great example. So there's a wonderful youth workforce development program called Year Up. 
It is phenomenal, run by a terrific social entrepreneur, Gerald Chertavian, and he works with the most at-risk kids, and he plugs them into corporate internships where they're developing um, skills, technology skills, but they're also given access to community college on a pathway to college. This program is delivering phenomenal results for these kids. They're completing college, they're getting into the workforce, um, making more, much more than a livable wage, and they're on the path to successful life outcomes. Well, if you talk about, you know, year up, they're about a $20 million, $25 million per year social enterprise, and at scale, they're serving only a couple of thousand kids. But when you look at the universe of at-risk youth in our country, it's 1.4 million. You can never get to the kind of scale we need to fully serve and support this community unless you bring in the other key actors of society, namely government and the private sector. So you sort of look at someone like Gerald and Dorothy Stoneman, the founder of YouthBuild, another very successful social entrepreneur. They're starting to leverage sectors like you know, housing and urban development getting line items of funding um, to really take their programs to scale and also change the policy environment that allow for better service opportunities for these at-risk young people. So what is the current administration doing? So as Anne and Jane alluded to, this is the first administration in history that has created a dedicated office to the White House Office of Social Innovation, and I think they've been very good at leveraging the bully pulpit to bring attention to the important work of social innovation, social entrepreneurs across this country. Um, they've also um, done something which I thought was pretty extraordinary. They really pushed for the passage of the Serve America Act um, that was named after um, the late Senator Kennedy that not only um, really scaled up the number of American citizens involved in service at home and abroad, but also tried um, to start to change the conversation on the way that capital flows in our society to solve social problems. So I think, was Arnie Duncan here earlier this week? He was last year. Was he? Last year, not this year, I don't think. So I think Secretary Duncan um, is probably the best example of the administration of a governmental actor at the Department of Education who's trying to change the incentive systems for government dollars in the education system. So there's something called the I-3 fund, which is dedicated $650 million fund to get social entrepreneurs to go to scale with their educational innovations. There's also the Race to the Top Fund that is incenting state educational actors um, to deliver better outcomes to our most at-risk young people in this country. And as Ann mentioned, there's something called a Social Innovation Fund, a $50 million fund housed at the Corporation for National and Community Service that, again, is trying to change the way capital flows in the social sector. So ultimately, the Social Innovation Fund, although quite small at $50 million, requires a three-to-one match from the private sector to drive money towards high-impact proven solutions for social change. So again, I think I've come around on this point. I do think government is a, an important partner in our endeavors, and if you can sort of change the efficacy, the way that government does its work, that in partnership, you do have the opportunity to change the needle on some of these tough problems. Can I add a caution to that? Because I think with all, with all partnerships, what is terribly important is to understand what each player brings, what each partner brings to the table, and to respect those differences uh, and preserve those those assets, those those uh, attributes that they have. Um, and uh, you know, I would argue that uh, probably the single most important attribute that philanthropy has it's, uh, is its ability to take risks, its ability to think long term. Uh, and, and try do its best to act in the long-term interest uh, of, of uh, you know, society and, and individuals. Uh, the private sector has to worry about quarterly returns. The public sector not only has to worry about the electoral cycle, it has to worry about the 24-hour news cycle. So its capacity to make long-term investments in the public interest is actually vastly diminished. That is not true of the foundation sector or the, or the social sector more broadly. Uh, and preserving that freedom, that agility, and that opportunity to think long term is the most important thing to do. So we never want to be in a situation where government is directing the social sector, but a situation in which those two sectors leverage each other. Great. Um, I'm going to ask one more um, sort of set of questions of the panelists, and then we're going to hear from you. So that's a little warning. Get ready for comments and questions. But um, sort of taking it, when we think about where philanthropy is and just building on these past comments, um, I'm curious to um, hear from both Jane and Cheryl about 
what is a, a new tool or a trend that practically you see um, philanthropy that can help be a, more of a multiplier effect? For example, at the Kellogg Foundation, and, and, and I've also had the privilege of running a small local foundation in Washington, D.C., um, one of the real opportunities for philanthropy is also what's our support beyond the check? You know, philanthropy, we normally think it's the grant, but we're seeing more convening power. How do we think about grantees as partners? Um, you know, I have the pleasure and privilege of, of being um, serving on um, provi providing financial support to Echo and Green in my capacity at the Kellogg Foundation. But Ke Cheryl is not just a grantee. She also serves on the board of overseers at Harvard University. She is a leader at Echo and Green and other spheres of influence. How do we think about the leaders that we're supporting and partnering with in a way that we're helping create more ripple effects of influence? And so I sort of I think about um, the, the networks here at the Aspen Ideas Festival and the folks that you might be supporting out there in the field, and how do you help make those um, networks, those opportunities and spheres of influence open to the, um, to the, the grantees or the folks that you're partnering with in, in the field? And so that's just leveraging beyond the check is a, is a tool that we've been trying to really work on at the Kellogg Foundation um, that I would share with the field. And I think Jane and Cheryl, I'd love to hear maybe one idea you might have as well from your experience. You know, a, a wonderful thing about philanthropy now is that it is so engaged. It is not about writing the checks and saying, lots of luck. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's all about uh, sharing core competencies, uh, and it's about uh, opening up one's Rolodex, to use an old-fashioned term, uh, and making the, uh, the connections and the introductions that are needed. Um, let me just sort of give you kind of my favorite philanthropist of this morning because um, I've got too many favorite philanthropists to have a couple on. But Jeff Skoll um, funded an organization uh, that I was engaged in called The Elders. I, mean, I helped do their initial strategic plan. Uh, Jeff's attitude toward funding is that first he writes the check that he feels uh, will be absolutely needed to provide the, the venture capital uh, for an organization to do well. But then he sits down and says, look, I'm your partner. What do you need? Do you need a film? <clears throat> made about you. I happen to own, have founded something called Participant Media. Do you need to know the Minister of Health in such and such a, a country? Do, and, and that is, it, I, I think of him as this, do you need an airplane to, to, <laughs> to get into Zimbabwe? I think I um, need him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is, this is all quiet. I mean, I think Jeff would be upset with me if he'd known I just said all that, because he's quiet, egoless, really egoless behind the scenes, but he looks at every asset he has and says, how can I apply it to ensure your success? Because otherwise, the grant is a sunk cost, right? It's not, you, you want your grant to produce success, and so therefore, you sort of reach into your toolbox and grab whatever tool you happen to have. Often that's volunteering. That's a great example. Cheryl? Uh, uh, because it's too hard to choose, I'll give you two quick examples. So there, one example that I find particularly fascinating, and it's my hope that the administration will take this up in due course, is sort of this burgeoning field of impact investing that we were talking um, briefly about earlier. Sort of this notion of um, investing for social and environmental returns as well as financial returns. We're sort of in this really interesting space where over the next decade or so, so much more capital is going to be flowing into this space. Currently, um, there's some estimates that about $100 billion is directed towards impact investing with predictions that we'll get to about a half a trillion dollars in the next five years. But I think it is such a beautiful example of this increasing blurring of boundaries between our sectors and the recognition, and I've heard Bill Gates talk about conscious capitalism, that if you can harness the power of the market, you're going to unleash so much more power in service of solving our social problems. So I think this notion of capital being deployed to solve social problems, really incredibly important. And then I think, you know, I gotta give a shout out to um, the millennials, sort of this, this, this phenomena of phenomenal youth engagement that I believe is transformative. You know, I'm a baby boomer, so we're sort of 76 million strong demographic slice. Well, the millennials are 80 million strong. And they are such a fascinating breed, you know, sort of their qualities and characteristics, I think, make them unique social sector actors um, that are practicing and walking through the world in a way that I call sort of altruistic individualism. So these kids, funny enough, you know, really want to do well. They want to 
achieve, um, and that's sort of personally driven. But the narration is about feeding your soul while feeding the world. They want to make a difference in a profound way in the, in people, in planet, but it's also wrapped in profits. How do we sort of build a sustainable society? And I think we ignore this mega trend at our peril. So if we can harness the way these young people are being engaged in society, I think we've got a phenomenal opportunity to really pull at these normative shifts, you know, these behavioral changes that ultimately get us to large-scale change. Thank you so much. All right, let's open it up for conversation with all of you. We have microphones here. Um, and if people would like to ask a question or share a comment, please introduce yourself because um, we are being taped and we'd like to you know, broaden the voices here. Can I just mention that I can just see in the audience two, other, two of my Aspen colleagues who in, in, it, through their programs are trying to promote social change uh, and leveraging philanthropy in the process. It's Janet Topolsky who's been focusing on, on uh, rural communities throughout mm -hmm. the United States. There's Lisa Mensa over there, you ought to raise your hand, who's uh, really a, a remarkable individual focused on poverty alleviation and, and a, a, a wider variety of issues. So, oh, and that's Janet who, who, who's gonna ask a question to boot. But I just wanted to give a shout out to those two because you may wanna have conversations with them during coffee. Uh, may I speak? Absolutely. As long as you're shouting me out, I wanna say something because a lot of the trends that you've talked about are trends sort of at this level. And the program I work with works with what I call another huge trend that gets missed a lot, which is that of locally controlled or community-owned philanthropy. Mm -hmm. There's a huge growth in this country of community foundations in not just in large metro areas, but in smaller rural places and in the growth of geographic affiliates of community foundations. So what we're seeing is what we call community development philanthropy, where a lot of these community foundations, and they could be in a neighborhood in an urban area, or they could be in a small town, or they could be in a county, are actually becoming development organizations and doing things that government or no one else can do in that place, because there's no one else who will do it. There is not another nonprofit organization. And so the sense of having locally controlled assets that are amassed by people who care about a place is a huge trend, and we've got all kinds of numbers behind that. Um, my favorite philanthropist, if you're going to talk about that, is a group of teachers in Ord, Nebraska, who have all committed $500 for a year for life to contribute to their community fund. So there's a democracy of philanthropy where everyone can be a giver. It's not just, or as, as a friend of mine says, philanthropy is not just for the rich or the dead. Yeah. No. <laughs> having, having run a local, having run a local foundation, I think that um, I couldn't agree more. I, 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 people are looking for a way to engage that is effective, that is inclusive, that is producing results, and allows to aggregate some of this local impact. And one piece I'd say, in addition to the um, community foundation world, there's also um, a growing base of um, locally based, ethnic based funds. And when we think about the kind of racial divides we have in this country and thinking about how do we mobilize local resources and energy to really think about um, you know, vulnerable communities, vulnerable families, and not to sort of say this is a colorblind community or society, but really how are we bringing resources together across lines of race, class, gender to think about making a difference in local communities, um, some, all sorts of innovation um, uh, at community foundations, women's funds, ethnic funds. So thank you so much for that comment. That's great. And let me just add a word about place-based philanthropy because I think it's incredibly important and we often overlook it. Um, larger foundations, there's a, there's a real trend to fewer, larger grants that are focused on, you know, like a laser, on solving a specific problem. And as you let me, this is a, a good thing, but there's a un potential unintended consequence. And that is that we will, we will just have a small number of very large nonprofits uh, as a result. And when you've solved the problem <laughs> and you want to move on to the next problem, you may not have that, that infrastructure anymore uh, you know, alive. The, the value, one of the values of place-based philanthropy is that it invests in all the, in, this, in sort of a vibrant civil society that will be the source of our societal resilience. As somebody with national security in our background, societal resilience is an essential 
uh, part of, of the strength and cohesion of our country. Uh, and without those multiple small grants to a wide range of organizations, you lose that kind of resilience. Absolutely. Other questions over there? Good morning. I'm Ginny Galisa now. And um, in April, I attended the Council on Foundations Conference in Denver. And at that conference, Judith Rodin um, spoke about a study that was being done uh, to look at the impact of, for instance, climate change. There are a number, as we all know, a number of nonprofits out there doing a lot of good work in climate change. And how does, I'm wondering, how do, is there a tool, uh, do the foundations and individuals look at all the players in the big puzzle and who all the different pieces of the puzzle out there and what, who, who, who's doing what to solve the big problem and then how do you measure the results without affecting or shutting down that risk factor where you have all those accidental discoveries that can happen? That's great. Um, I'm gonna first, there's a specific partnership we did with Rockefeller, but I first, I think, I wanna to turn to the panelists. Well, you, you, you threw us a bit of a puffball because climate change is an, easy, is, is, is an easier case. Uh, and the reason it's an easier case is that uh, we're quite fortunate to have an extraordinary leader in the field, uh, a guy named Hal Harvey, who put together a, a large and complex uh, strategy for addressing climate change. Uh, that was based on a consensus amongst scientists and others that, um, and, and he created, in essence, a regranting organization, a, a foundation that raised money and then gave away money. But it raised money to advance a strategy that involved forestry, that involved uh, you know, alternative fuels, it involved each aspect of a complex problem, uh, and then raised a very significant amount of money from large foundations like Hewlett and Packard and others, and he now runs a smaller grants program. So there's an example of foundations coming together around a coherent strategy, and each one saying, well, this is the piece of the strategy that interests me, or if they're place-based, I care about what happens in the Amazon, or I care about what happens in China. So that's an example of a high degree of collaboration around an agreed-upon strategy. I can't say that the same exists for all large issues. And um, sort of a plug for the Monitor Institute where the Rockefeller Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation all came together trying to think differently about innovation. And um, Rockefeller took the lead on creating a new mapping tool. Um, you know, the philanthropy side struggles with how do you collect data and results just like our grantees do. And there's a new tool that's being piloted through climate change that literally it's a visual way of mapping where investments are going by strategy and by place. And if anybody is sort of working in that, um, in that space and interested, they, they actually, they're piloting the tool. They're looking for different folks, both at the community level, because it aggregates both you know, local level work and inter up to international, but presenting the data, quite frankly, in a useful way that you can get the headlines. And um, so that's a tool that's actually, um, many of the, the larger foundations are looking at employing so that we can be more strategic, quite frankly. And then also I think the job of larger foundations like Kellogg or Rockefeller is how to develop some tools like that and make it available to everybody. And so that we're also, to Jane's point, about how we're really building the, um, the field and the sector and making sure it's you know, beyond just an individual grant or new tool that's available for everybody. So that's something that, especially Judy and Rockefeller took a lead on. Do you know if any work along the same lines has been done around women and girls' issues in education? Oh, I will. Um, I would certainly talk to Marjorie Sims as well as others after. I think it's the Women's Funding Network, uh, among other entities, is really trying to start to map that. Um, and that might be a great place to start, uh, as well as there's a, there's a really growing field in that space as well. But the Women's Funding Network, and I would actually be happy to talk with you more offline about that as well. Also, internationally, internationally. there's been a real, because you know, the, the good thing about having over 60 years of economic development as assistance as a country is we've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't. And there is a clear consensus and has been for at least 20 years that the best investment uh, one could make if one's trying to promote economic development in, uh, overseas is an investment in women and girls. And many foundations, both large foundations but foundations 
Lots of small family foundations and large family foundations and corporate foundations have coalesced around the sense that, that is, you know, that's the investment they want to make. It's the highest leverage investment, and they've got a clear set of strategies. So it ranges from Nike, you know, a corporate foundation, to Novo, which is a family foundation, uh, to just about every Ford, just about every major uh, private foundation. And Cheryl, anything you're seeing on the network side of those entrepreneurs, like how are we mapping the, the networks of social entrepreneurs or how that, that's coming together? Sure. I mean, you know, I think we should all be really encouraged by what we just heard from Ann and Jane because basically what you're asking about is sort of, you know, what makes a market, you know, and the, the fundamental definition of a market is all the things that enable money to find its uses. And, you know, you can quibble in these sessions when we nonprofit people get together. Is there a nonprofit capital marketplace? There is one, but it is pretty, you know, inefficient. It is pretty dysfunctional, I would say, but I think you can hear from both Jane and Ann that you're starting to get all of the building blocks of what makes a more functional marketplace. The intermediaries that help money get to best and highest use more quickly, metrics, evaluation system, all the tools that bring greater clarity to a marketplace. And I think we're starting to have those conversations in our sector and bringing together sort of the networks, the data, the tools that I think over time will get us there and sort of increase the efficacy and efficiency of our sector. So I, I'm pretty hopeful about it all. And I think the transparency of data is really yeah. key in this, and yeah. it is a new trend. As folks are gathering data, Absolutely. they're saying, how do we get it out so the entire field yeah. learns from it? Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Ann. <coughs> Al Jubitz, uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, you have uh, given clarity in uh, your terminology to what I've sensed has been going on, so thank you very much. question I have, and I heard this uh, five years ago, that we're five years into a 25-year period in the person's mind that I, I'm referring to, and it is the, 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 year, the uh, period of time when most job growth is going to be in the nonprofit sector versus the for-profits. Now, I don't hear that in the public discourse, but we're in a period of time right now where jobs uh, seem to drive attention, if not dollars, and I'm just wondering if government is aware that the nonprofit sector is where the job growth's growth is right now. Yes, so yeah, they are aware, but I, I do think sort of the current narrative has not accepted that to the degree that it needs to. So, you know, the nonprofit workforce represents about 12% of GDP. And when you look across all industries over the past couple years, it has been the nonprofit sector that has showed positive growth relative to other sectors. And some will bemoan that because people sort of naturally say, we got to have, you know, the economic progress through small business generation. But, you know, nonprofits are small businesses. I mean, you know, let's forget about the tax classification code. They're small business opportunities. Um, and they're very grounded in community meaning and social capital. And I think it's really powerful. Let me, you know, one of my favorite examples is, um, you know, Michael Milken also often talks about, you know, the most important asset class is human capital. And what if you invested appropriately, how would you unleash opportunity? And he talks about this incredible, you know, accidental experiment. So in the 60s, there were two British colonies, Jamaica and Singapore, that sort of, you know, post-colonization went off. And what, what happened? At the time, they both had identical populations, 1.6 million people, identical per capita GDP, about $2,200. Um, and then what happened over the ensuing 30 years? So Jamaica continued to invest in agriculture, mining, tourism, where Singapore made an intentional decision to invest rigorously in the development of its educational system. Um, and what happens, you know, Singapore's GDP is now seven times that of Jamaica, and there are all sorts of other factors, but I think you can see what happens when you make an intentional investment in human capital through the social sector. So I actually think you're on something incredibly important and that we shouldn't look um, negatively at this trend because the nonprofit sector is an industry. It's a thriving industry, and it's one that relies on double bottom line, triple bottom line results. So again, I'm fairly sanguine about that trend. I think it's an important one. I'm so glad you've raised it because most people are, are absolutely unaware of it. And the US government has been, in fact, turning turning to organizations like ours, asking us for data. And we're not only providing that data, but we're saying to the US government, look, you're gathering a great deal of data on the nonprofit sector, on employment, on a whole range of issues. Um, 
make that data transparent and don't give it to us two years later through uh, publishing, uh, having GuideStar publish uh, Form 990s. Give it to us in real time so that we can plan intelligently around a whole variety of policy and social issues because we understand the data and its role within the nonprofit sector and its role in society. That's great. Just a follow-up. Um, <clears throat> is there any talk in, on the Hill about uh, earmarks for non, for this fund or uh, nonprofits in general? And because I, you know, my son-in-law works in the in education, you know, university field, and he's always going to the National Science Foundation for money. And so the government is funding education; they're funding corporations and corporate welfare and all sorts of stuff. But it sounds like the Obama administration started to fund this fund that then funds the nonprofit sector. So, so hopefully that awareness, because I believe that more work gets done in the nonprofit sector for for common good than anywhere else. Here, here. Yeah, and I think I think I just appreciate you raising that up. I think one of the things that we have not done well, or we have yet to do, is to connect that conversation to the Department of Labor. And so where you're really talking, you're talking about jobs and economic growth, where we're also talking about social innovation and impact. And I think both at the national level, as Cheryl and, um, and Jane have both said, but also new voices talking about that and building the drumbeat at state level. When we also look at resources being deployed at state government level and thinking about, because still at most, if you're a governor, you're a cabinet secretary at the state level, there are precious few spots where you have growth opportunities. And we haven't yet fully, I think, tap that um, in a really real-time way, building on what both um, Jane and Cheryl talked about. Um, another comment or question? Gentleman over here. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll get, and then we'll go right back there. Sorry, my eyes are waking. <laughs> Victor Chan. I just want to um, reinforce this idea of, um, that yeah, you all talk about, uh, of uh, investing in, uh, in people rather than uh, a project. And uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to, to mention an initiative uh, that has a, a slight twist uh, in it. Uh, it is something that uh, have been developed in the last uh, couple of years now, and it's called the uh, Dalai Lama, uh, the 14 Dalai Lama Scholars and uh, Fellows Program. Uh, which is a very uh, international type of enterprise. Uh, we are engaging uh, universities in uh, Jeru Jerusalem, uh, in Africa, in, uh, in Asia, as well as in the uh, Western uh, uh, countries. And uh, the idea is to develop a network of, uh, as you say, young people, millennials, and so on, that not only have academic uh, excellence, uh, but uh, there is a very strong um, focus on uh, social innovation uh, as well. And, uh, and the, the third point about it is that uh, we are also looking for people who uh, embodies the uh, compassionate ideals uh, of the Dalai Lama. Uh, so we are hoping that uh, through this network of uh, young scholars, uh, who not only have the intellectual ca capacity, uh, but also have the uh, right uh, heart uh, to uh, make uh, a significant uh, difference in the world. Thanks. Yeah, I, I actually l love that, and I think we need more work like that. You know, there's a scholar, Herbert Muller, um, who was sort of one of the leading scholars on um, youth and society, and sort of writes across society about, you know, even in developed societies like ours, that there is a profound underinvestment in our young people, and that, you know, we as societies are leaving a ton of capital and potential on the table when we don't invest appropriately. So again, here, here, I'm all for that sort of investment. Really important. Wonderful. And we have a question back or comment? Hi, it's a question. George Goldsmith, uh, New York. Um, I'm really curious about the tension and how it gets managed between social innovation and fragmentation. And what you're seeing in, if you fast forward five years and let's pick a particular topic, and how the major donor organizations in the world will actually collaborate on a common model uh, or a common approach of what impact means in a particular area so that there can be less fragmentation, certainly driven by the top, if you will. 
great question. Um, I'd like to. Well, it's a wonderful question. I, mean, I think I kind of alluded to it to say that the, the large foundations are, have exactly your concern. And so they're trying to promote collaboration. I have to say that when I was, when I worked for foundations, and I've worked for, for three different private foundations in my life, um, the foundation presidents had very little interaction with each other. Uh, but the program officers talked every week uh, with each other. And so there was a high degree uh, of, of collaboration among them. What has changed is the foundation presidents talk to each other now. It's now throughout the society, so the, throughout these institutions. So we have something called the Aspen Philanthropy Group, for example, which is uh, an annual gathering of, of uh, the, the CEOs of 20 of the, of, of the world's largest foundations. Uh, and, and they worry about fragmentation of effort. But at the same time, as I alluded to before, you, you never want a world in which we are all investing in that which is already known and discovered. <laughs> that, that would be the end of the sector. It's as though you said to a venture capitalist, gee, we only want you to give to the company that's already gone public, or you know, invest in the company. The company has already gone public and it's, a, it's wildly successful already. Uh, so you do want to be seeding the next big idea, and so, or the next small idea that's going to add up. Uh, and so this combination of, of foundations that will dedicate themselves to seeding that next, next idea, to taking a risk, taking a bet on an unknown person, uh, is terribly important at the same time. But it is indeed a tension, and it's a really great point. Sheila, your perspective on that? Uh, well, I'm going to borrow a perspective on this, because I was at a, a talk week before last with jo Judith Roden, who was talking about exactly this issue. And you know, my field, you know, my work is mostly about product innovation, right? But there is also this whole field of process innovation. You know, so how do you deliver sustainable innovations to the marketplace? And that, I think, what is exactly what Jane was talking about, where you're starting to see um, folks like Jane and Anne Kellogg and Rockefeller talking about design as a solution or part of this equation of how do we you know, tamp down on this fragmentation problem. And it was fascinating to me, you know, I took a lot of notes and I can't wait to sort of what comes, see what comes, but sort of leveraging technology, using design experts and the science of design to sort of figure out how do you create you know, a more well-networked process for delivering these innovations in a more seamless manner. Yeah, and I, I just think that's one of the big tensions and opportunities we have ahead of us. We're at a, whether it's a shift moment or a wake up moment, where at the large foundations over the past five plus years, we've seen complete leadership transition at Ford, at Kellogg, at Atlantic, and many others, as well as the new foundations, will be at the Gates and others that are stepping up and playing really creative roles. And how are we just being intentional that where we collaborate, and also this growing trend of working at place-based level, where are we really collaborating, where are we really strategic, where are we creating space for others to lead, others to take risk, and the transparency piece is huge, but that's one of the most important creative tensions you've named on. So we're coming at the close of this session. I don't know if there are any, if we want to go around there for any last minute comments or questions before I ask our fabulous panelists, and I would really say um, talent, assets, leadership assets of the field, to sort of say a closing comment here. Um, any last comments or questions for them to incorporate in their closing? before we just kind of wrap up. Okay. Um, so Cheryl, Jane, any last words of advice or thoughts or inspiration? Sure, well, so thank you all for coming. Just think it's pretty impressive that we sort of gathered here uh, on Sunday morning. Um, uh, so I would just say this, you know, it's very exciting as a practitioner of the field of social entrepreneurship and social innovation. You know, five years ago, we were sort of doing this work in obscurity. Nobody was talking about it. Very few people were thinking about it. And it has really entered the public consciousness, in part because of these demographic trends I've talked about, in part because of the trends that Jane has talked about with these new philanthropists who are doing business differently, the way foundations are operating differently. Um, but I think, um, you know, sort of with this, um, this, this new public awareness, comes the concern about dilution. And what is this message all about? So, you know, at its core, social innovation is not about incremental change. It's about dramatic boosts in the performance of a system. So we've got to remember to hold ourselves accountable that you know a high school dropout prevention pro program, a social innovation in that context, it's about 
you know, knocking down that dropout rate by 50%, not five or 10% moving of the needle. You know, again, I think if we really hold ourselves to high standards, which I think we can absolutely do, because there's phenomenal work being done by indigenous leaders and communities all across this country and around the world. Um, and I think if we want, you know, to deploy capital and resources to their best and highest use, if we start to remember that social innovation is about transformation as opposed to just change, I think it's a nice way to sort of keep us on the track um, of um, what we're already doing. Thank you, Cheryl. Jane. And you've just heard that from a, a transformational figure. So um, she, she practices what she preaches. I, you know, the other day I heard a quote from, uh, there's a man I just admired wonderfully from, from your field, from the field of health, uh, Bill Fage. Uh, and, uh, and Bill quoted Albert Schweitzer, and they said, uh, Albert Schweitzer apparently at a commencement address said, I don't know, to, to the students, I don't know what your, uh, what your destiny will be, but those of you who will have learned how to serve will be the happy ones. Mm -hmm. um, when I heard that, I thought, you know, the, the Albert Schweitzer quote that I always remember is him saying, uh, man is a very clever animal who behaves like an imbecile every day. So, so what I'm going to do is leave you um, with, with my favorite Albert Schweitzer quotation, and and that is because we have a a, a room filled with uh, with philanthropists uh, committed to the social good, and that is my my favorite quote is, uh, "Go off and do something wonderful; others might imitate you." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, with that said, philanthropy at its ultimate core and definition is love of humankind. And this group here, we thank you for all the work that you're doing, bringing your heart and your head and all the assets to the work you're doing every day. And I'd also really love to join me in thanking Cheryl Dorsey and Jane Wales for joining us thank this you. morning. Thank you. Thank you. I love those quotes. So I have to get those quotes down.